edition of the Thoracic Surgery Resident Association's podcast. The opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for teaching purposes only and should not be applied directly to patient care. Hello, this is Michael Kayata bringing you a TSRA podcast on ascending aortic aneurysms. I'm a cardiothoracic surgery resident here at Emory University. Today, I'll be speaking with Dr. Edward Chen, also from Emory, regarding his thoughts on the evaluation of patients with ascending aneurysms, including the preoperative workup, intraoperative strategies, and postoperative management. Dr. Chen serves as the director of the aortic center at Emory and has a research focus and large clinical practice in aortic disease. Dr. Chen, I'd like to start with a case scenario. You are asked to evaluate a 65-year-old male who presents with an incidentally discovered 5.7-centimeter ascending aortic aneurysm seen on a non-contrast chest CT. Uh, He is asymptomatic, has normal renal function, and is otherwise very healthy. What would your strategy for working up this patient be? Thanks, Michael. Um, I think when we see a patient like this, we the first thing is just to get a general history and physical, look for any significant comorbid medical conditions. At 5.7, uh, the size of this aneurysm is clearly within the guidelines uh, for surgical intervention being indicated. So we would work toward that goal. Uh, and the typical workup outside the usual labs and so forth is, is a cardiac cath given his age. Uh, we want an echocardiogram just to look at his aortic valve and aortic root anatomy, uh, as well as a um, uh, of course, the CT scan has already been done. I think if there's any concern about aortic root anatomy, uh, pathology, or valve dysfunction, particularly when it comes to making decisions whether the valve is repairable or sparable, we'll, we'll also get a transesophageal echo. But if it's pretty clear that the valve needs to be replaced and the root is large enough, we will just stick with the basic transthoracic study. Great. Um, so this patient uh, did have has a TEE, which demonstrates a normal ejection fraction uh, with a normal trileaflet aortic valve with no AI. His left heart cath is clean. This patient is an appropriate candidate for surgery. Uh, Would you please describe your operative approach? So I'm going to assume that his um, aortic root is normal in size. He's got good valve function, as you mentioned. Uh, You know, he would be a patient that we would plan an ascending aortic aneurysm repair with hemiarch um, reconstruction as our uh, procedure of choice at our institution. Uh, obviously, these are done through a sternotomy incision. They can be done through a mini sternotomy, but typically we have gone away from that for the purposes of, of resident education. Uh, our, uh, there are multiple ways for brain protection as part of these operations for the hemiarch portion, but we prefer uh, axillary cannulation and a great perfusion, typically unilaterally, uh, to the right carotid system. We'll clamp both the left carotid and the anomic arteries, and uh, you know we'll do this under a moderate degree of hypothermia. Uh, obviously, other ways, of other management strategies for cerebral protection include deep hypothermia alone and retrograde cerebral protection. But over the last decade or so, we've evolved here, as you know, uh, toward um, integrate perfusion of the brain and, and MHCA. Thanks. Um, if this patient had a history of connective tissue disease, would your management be any bit different? Um, and specifically, um, what size uh, 
would you recommend intervention on patients with uh, a history of connective tissue disease? I think we probably tend to be a little bit more aggressive in people with connective tissue disorders in terms of operating on them at smaller size criteria. Uh, typically, it's between 4.5 to 5 instead of 5 to 5.5. The guidelines obviously uh, state that an ascending aneurysm uh, meets surgical indications at 5.5, but even in some younger people, uh, we might operate at 5 to 5.5, knowing that our operative results here are relatively good. But again, these are the guidelines are not meant to be hard rules, but just uh, just as a general. Uh, but every patient is treated individually. So our, but our a surgical approach would be the same. We might be a little bit more aggressive in the aortic root if there's a marginal root dilation. But uh, again, it, it, the, the surgery would be carried out with the same operative and surgical management strategy um, in terms of cardiac protection, brain protection, and, and, and the temperature at which we cool the lower half of the body to. What if the patient had, instead of a tricuspid valve, a bicuspid valve, would that influence uh your decision to, to operate, or would you operate at a smaller size? Well, you know, that's a, a topic, Michael, of, of uh, con a discussion or debate, uh, whatever you want to call it, right now in the surgical community. There's a discrepancy in, in some of the valve guidelines versus the thoracic aortic guidelines. But I think that, um, and, and there's some studies that have been published that have shown that uh, you know, that there's no real need to operate or to be more aggressive in the setting of a bicuspid valve. I think the way I look at bicuspid valves is, is sort of twofold. I think if you're operating on a patient because of a primary valve problem and the patient needs valve intervention, whether it's severe AI or AS, we will be a little bit more aggressive and operate uh, if, if the aorta is over 4.5. And that's met with some controversy, uh, obviously, but, but Again, we feel good enough about our outcomes here to justify that. And, and um, occasionally you get into the OR and, and you'll see uh, even when it's 4.4 that the aorta is quite thin and almost transparent, and that might change our intraoperative strategy as well. But if you have a patient with a normal valve function and, and is doing fine without any symptoms, we'll typically use the standard guidelines of, of five and a half. As oftentimes these patients are, are relatively younger than older. They may be in their 40s or 50s. And, you know, there may be, so if you have a 5.2 aneurysm in the setting of um, a bicuspid valve without symptoms and normal valve function, what do you do then? And, and then we just sort of have a discussion with the patient and sort of let, bring them into the decision-making process. And then sometimes anxiety can, can play a role in, in patients and what they ultimately decide to do. Some patients are okay with watching it, observing and with serial imaging. Others, you know, just need to have something done so they can move on with life. And, you know, we, we sort of tailor everything individually. So um, do you ever uh, do any ascending patients uh, with a, a cross clamp? You know, I typically have not done that because uh, we're very comfortable with cross clamping. I think, you know, when you cross, a lot of times the, the aortic enlargement sort of resolves at the level of the proximal arch at, at, in the anomaline artery in, in zone, you know, one or so, sometimes even in the zone two. Um, and, and usually if you're going to do it under a cross clamp, um, you know, you need a centimeter plus of aorta for the cross clamp and a centimeter plus of aorta for the distal suture line. So you're talking about one inch or greater uh, where the distal suture line is going to be below the proximal to the anomaline artery. And, and I think that um, sometimes when you do that, you, 
uh, obviously there can be concern of progressive aortic enlargement. That may, I don't know the long-term outcomes or event that's ever been studied to know how many of those patients need reintervention, particularly for those without connective tissue problems. But I think that the, 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 our circulation management strategy of moderate hypothermia um, and, and anti-grade cerebral perfusion has left us with a very low rate of, of, of renal insufficiency, stroke, and, and the geometry lies so much nicer that we typically just do these uh, under uh, circulatory arrest without a clamp. Got it. So looking um, to the postoperative management, um, what is your strategy um, in taking care of these patients? Do they need to be managed any differently, say, than patients recovering from a cabbage or AVR? I think any time anyone undergoes circulatory arrest, you know, that's you're putting them through a degree of hypovolemic shock. And so we, we tend to be very aggressive in volume resuscitating these patients. Um, and, and the other thing is these patients have generally a history of hypertension. So we, we don't necessarily keep their mean blood pressures on the lower side post-op. We tend to run them a little higher, what they are at baseline, i.e. means of 80s to 90s, which may seem high, but keep in mind that a blood pressure of 120 over 80, which is considered normal, is a mean of 90. So we'll, we'll usually shoot for at least a mean of 80 and then aggressively volume resuscitate them and follow their blood gases and lactates until everything is normalized. Um, and, you know, we certainly patients with coronary bypass or isolated AVR also need fluid resuscitation time to time, but uh, it doesn't appear to, the need does not appear to be as great as those having uh, proximal aortic replacement with circulatory rest. Okay. So to the resident who's taking care of the patient uh, in the ICU, after surgery, are there any early postoperative complications uh, that we should be uh, particularly uh, looking for in this patient population? You know, I, I would say the, the outside of waking up and being neurologically intact, obviously that's the first hurdle they've got to face because these cases are associated with risk of stroke. I think the main thing that we worry about in any patient like this or any cardiac patient is urine output. I think it's very important particularly when you run the means lower. Patients uh, with hypertension can have renal dysfunction and low urine output because the kidneys aren't used to seeing such a low perfusion pressure. So I think it's very important just to make sure that urine output is very um, robust or adequate during surgery. And with circulatory rest, particularly moderate hypothermia, uh, there can be a, a lactic acidosis that occurs. And it's just important to monitor them for systemic signs of inflammation or, or, or acidosis or organ malperfusion. Excellent. Um, looking to uh, the patient after discharge, um, how would it, what is your normal follow-up strategy? You know, typically we, if we, without any problems, we, we, we wouldn't necessarily image them uh, in the immediate post-op period. We might wait three to six months to allow all the inflammation, edema to resolve in the mediastinum, and we'll image them at typically three to six months post-op. Now, even now, I typically just do it at six months. Some people might disagree with that, and I know some image earlier at three months, which is very reasonable, but, but we found that not a whole lot, we don't find a whole lot that we need to worry about at three months, so we just stopped doing that just for cost issues and patient convenience and so forth. But typically, it's, it's uh, six months, and if that looks reasonably good, depending if they have bicuspid valve disease, uh, and the rest of the descending one, we may not ever image them again unless the problem comes up. We may, um, if they have connective tissue disorders, we'll want to image them indefinitely every year or eventually every couple of years. And then if there's residual aortic pathology, such as residual dissection or descending enlargement, then those will get followed on an every once or two-year basis. 
Um, and it really depends again in, on the individual patient and their specific disease process. I wanted to ask you just a couple uh, questions uh, specifically about the operation itself. Um, could you talk about um, how you carry out your uh, distal and proximal anastomoses um, and how do you uh, ensure hemostasis? Uh, I think that, you know, it's um, beyond the basic, uh, the general concepts of, 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 you know, respecting the tissue and being very careful. Uh, you know, we, we typically um, usually take bigger bites. We don't use felt at our institution, as you know, because we've taken out enough felt from other institutions or, and from within our own that it's very difficult and, uh, at the time of reoperative surgery. But I, I think that we have tended to go recently uh, over the years with the smaller and smaller needles, um, you know, 4-0 BB needles, 5-0 needles, 5-0 sutures. One thing I learned when I was during my time in Houston was that we, we always reinforce the back row uh, with an additional suture line. That way, uh, uh, when you take the clamps off and reestablish flow, uh, that any posterior bleeding uh, risk is minimized. But I think that, uh, you know, we have great residents here, as you know, and, and uh, fortunately, uh, we, uh, uh, we are able to allow them to do uh, all, most of these operations. But I, th I think it's the fail-self mechanism we put in place, the reinforcement, the additional suture lines, uh, careful tissue handling, uh, smaller needles, minimizing needle trauma. Uh, those are the things that sort of help a lot with that. So as you know, we, we don't find felt to be really needed, nor do we use any bioglue or any of those hemostatic agents unless it's a reoperation. But even then, we typically don't use those too much. Great. Uh, you mentioned um, that you preferentially use moderate um, hypothermia and anti-grade cerebral perfusion. Um, could you talk a little bit more about um, different perfusion strategies? Well, so there's obviously there's three main categories of, of brain protection, um, circulation management. There's deep hyperthermia, which requires no brain perfusion. That's you cool the patients to about 18 degrees, and there's about a safe 30 minute window of opportunity to complete the anastomosis before um, a brain dysfunction um, occurs. Retrograde perfusion uh, is a, a, literally perfusion of the brain through the SVC. And, and going backwards from the venous to the arterial system. That was developed in the early 90s when retrograde cardioplegia was found to be very effective in protecting the, the heart. Um, I think it's been, there's been some controversy, obviously, about retrograde. It certainly, we know it keeps the brain cold. Whether it provides nutritive flow is up for debate. Uh, it is, you are able to flush out any debris or air emboli that may accumulate uh, in the vasculature at the time of your arch reconstruction, um, you know, it, it's associated with very good outcomes. I, I think we also know in, in expert hands uh, in Houston and, and Philadelphia that, that it's associated with very low rates of stroke, but it's also been shown that higher uh, or greater increased time of, of circulatory rest for more complex operations uh, over 40 minutes are associated with higher rates of, of temporary neurologic dysfunction. Now, anti-grade perfusion is what a lot of people use now. We certainly have, have been an advocate of that. Uh, that allows uh, anti-grade flow of the brain, That it's uh, and the perfusate of the brain is, is cold, 16 to 18 degrees. And, be and because of we know we're getting good perfusion of the brain, um, it's also been shown that extended period of circulatory rest are, are so still associated with low rates of, of cerebral injury. But because the lower half of the body it does not require 
the metabolic needs are not as great as the brain. Uh, we don't have to cool them to those deep levels, hypothermia, 18 degrees as it was in the past. Typically, we cool them to 25, 28 degrees now. Excellent. Well, thank you very much uh, for speaking to us today about uh, ascending aortic aneurysms. Uh, it's been a pleasure. Oh, thanks so much, Michael.